0: It looks much worse in this environment than it might at Tesla, for example, because this is an existing social network where breaking eggs means, you know, literal people and companies get damaged. And so somewhere in between those kind of five explanations for what's going on is, uh, is the truth, I think. Or there might just your, be. What's your, what's
1: your vote? What's your, first of all, what won? And then, but what is, what did you vote for?
0: Well the poll is still going on. Oh my um,
1: god, Ari, this is going up on Tuesday. I don't <laughs> want to like muddy the waters in your Twitter poll. Welcome to The Rebooting Show. I'm Brian Morrissey. This is a show where I speak to people operating media businesses to get into the hood of their business models. If you like this show, and I hope you do, please check out another podcast I'm doing. This one is with former Hearst Magazine's president, Troy Young. It's called The People vs. Algorithms Podcast, where we take a bit of a broader view of the patterns emerging in media, tech, and culture. This week, we spent a fair bit of time dissecting why charismatic billionaires end up getting things very, very disastrously wrong as we've seen in the cases of Sam Bankman-Fried and Elon Musk, very chaotic tenure owning Twitter over the past few weeks. You can find it on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, it's a good show, so please do check it out. This week on The Rebooting Show, I spoke to Ari Paparo. Ari is a longtime ad tech exec, and you know if someone is an OG in this space when they go back to click. He's got a very deep understanding of this fast-changing sector. I've relied on Ari many times over the years as I've been lost in a sea of acronyms, and he mostly kept out of the acronym soup during our discussion. But we had to talk about the best at Twitter and why the advertisers most likely are not coming back anytime soon. And then we got into what the future of ad tech looks like in an era where targeting specific audiences is getting harder and more expensive. I hope you enjoyed this episode and please send me your feedback. My email is bmrc at gmail.com. Thanks to Jay Sparks of PodHelp Us for producing this podcast. If you have any podcasting needs or are thinking about making one, please do get in touch with Jay. You can find out more about his services at podhelp.us. All right, I want to have you on to talk about like two main things, and and they're both pressing to the future of humanity. One is what the hell is going on at Twitter because it's everyone's favorite topic, and like we just have to talk about it. And then we're going to talk about what the hell is going on with ad tech, and we're going to try to tie them together. So first, like you're one of my, you're, I think you're you're my favorite like ad tech related Twitter follow.
0: Okay, not much of a competition, but uh, I'm doing my best there. Well, that's like, I like joke,
1: like I I sometimes joke, probably not to you, but like you're the funniest person in ad tech, but it's not like not that much of a compliment.
0: Yeah, it's true. Oh, you know, I sometimes people like stop me on the street and be like, I love you on Twitter. And my wife is like, what the fuck just happened? Like, are you famous or something?
1: I could assure her, no, you are not.
0: I'm famous in a very small group that happens (laughs) to live with a but for those who do not
1: know, walk down because you have been like an ad tech aficionado going back to like the original, not the original, but the old school days. But back when it was just like, you know, juiced up ad networks and whatnot.
0: <laughs> yeah, I started in ad tech in 2004. So I wasn't in the first wave, like the dot com wave and the double click craziness. I started at Double Click in 2004 when it was already like past its prime. And, and oh my had- God, Double Click was past its prime in 2004. In 2004, DoubleClick was a incredibly poorly performing public company filled with people who didn't want to work there and customers who hated them. Uh, it was a really messed up company. Uh and I was lucky enough to join right when they were taken private by a private equity firm. Oh yeah. Uh, and then cleaned up and fixed. So I got yeah, lucky They were t-
1: they were tarted up and then they just got the timing totally right with Google.
0: <laughs> tarted up. They were tarted up really significantly. The uh double click went from being sold off the public markets for three hundred million to being sold to Google less than two years later for three billion. Yeah. So 10x return in less than two years—that's quite a tarting. And um, then,
1: and then a, a Quantiv, the the like—it's still <laughs> possibly one of the worst deals that like took place in this
0: industry. A is competing with Elon Musk, I think, for the worst use of capital uh, in the history of digital media. Uh, yeah. So I got lucky twice, though, in terms of how I got to where I am, uh, or maybe three times. The first was I got in DoubleClick at the perfect time when it was ready to be fixed. Second was my job at DoubleClick was really interesting. I was kind of the product manager for miscellaneous. So whenever anyone had some crazy idea that was not a banner ad, they would come to me. So that was video. That was mobile. That was billboards. That was like anything. Like all the strange entrepreneurs called me. Uh, and tried to get me to integrate with them. So that was a really fun job. And I guess the third thing I got lucky on was that uh, Business Insider, I became friends with Business Insider because I was, like, the only person at Google who would ever talk to them. Of course, I wouldn't use my name, but, you know. Uh, and uh, so uh, they started writing articles that, like, name-checked me in weird ways, like, this is a low-level guy at Google you should know and stuff like that. And what a compliment. <laughs> you should put that on your LinkedIn. And then one day they posted, back this was back when Business Insider was really popular. This sounds it, like when Baywall. Nick was still writing, was it? it was Nick. Nick, it was Nick. Was that yeah, it was Nick. And, uh, <laughs> and like one day they, they were like the 100 Twitter accounts you must follow if you're in advertising. And I was like ahead of Rupert Murdoch. I was like number 18 on their list of the 100 Twitter follow- accounts you must follow. And I went from being like having 50 Twitter followers and tweeting about my lunch to suddenly being an influencer. Uh, and the rest is history.
1: That is back when like Twitter was like the original Twitter is the one that I miss when it was about like – Tweeting about your lunch and just doing little one-liners and like I've never evolved uh, on Twitter. Um, yeah, and I so remember that's tec- why I,
0: texting my tweets on my BlackBerry yeah. to like the the phone number that was yeah. how I started using Twitter. So
1: I haven't evolved at all. I've, I'm tweeting the same thing I did like back then, and uh, what I found is it's it's uh, it's very niche. It's, it's it's there's not a big market. I've capped out at the market. The number of people who will follow me on Twitter is 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 finite, I found
0: out. How many followers do you have?
1: Like, I don't know, like 40, 41, 42,000 or
0: something like this. Are you I don't know a, how many are real. Are you more of a TikTok guy?
1: No, I don't do TikTok. Twitter's no. the only social network I um, act... Well, I use Instagram a little bit, but
0: just... But aren't you like a media celebrity? I mean, I think this should be part of your portfolio. You're underperforming if you don't have a Twitter present.
1: Well, let's talk about that because, like, I don't, I don't really... I think Twitter is kind of silly, to be honest with you. And sure. the, the fact that it is, it is getting as much like attention a- as it is sort of amuses me to, to a degree. Because nobody, at the end of the week, all right, nobody, nobody says, you know what? It was a good week. I got a lot done, if Elon Musk asks. But I really wish I, I spent more time on Twitter.
0: I agree Nobody. with you. No, it, it's, a, it's it's like a,
1: someone saying like, you know, it was a good night last night, but I wish I had more menthol cigarettes.
0: <laughs> That's exactly what it's like. It's like the, you enjoy that sweet minty pull of nicotine <laughs> and you go one after another and you really do regret it the next day. But then the next evening, they're out again. So uh, I don't know what to tell you. I'm totally addicted to Twitter and I hope Elon doesn't destroy my okay, only you, joy you... in life. You, you
1: had a, you had, this is the Twitter segment. So you had like a little uh, tweet thread today. So you've evolved your Twitter use. There, there wasn't, I refuse to acknowledge tweet threads exist. And you were trying to unpack like, you know, the, I think the big question is what the hell is this guy doing? I mean, he's like the most successful entrepreneur of a generation, multiple generations. I don't even know. And like, at least from the outside from mere mortal, I'm not a billionaire. I don't know. I don't put rockets in space. doesn't seem like he knows what the hell he's doing.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I love situations like this. I love trying to understand people's psychology and maybe try to empathize a little bit with where they're coming from. And this is absolutely fascinating because it's the richest person on earth, like quite literally, someone who has made multiple companies hugely successful. And he's not just, you know, tripping a little bit. He's systematically... Mismanaging a situation to a degree that is, uh, it seems like it must be on purpose almost. It's like performance art. Andy Kaufman as CEO. It's just extraordinary. And, and the, the really ha, you have to ask the question why you can't just sit there and just say, Oh, he's just a bad manager. Cause that doesn't line up with the other pieces of information we have. Maybe he's a very aggressive manager. Okay. Fine. But that doesn't explain uh why he tweets antagonistic things towards his advertisers maybe he's a right wing you know incel i don't know maybe but like uh the entire pick like 11 kids
1: right, he I does think yeah incel.
0: incel is not the word i was looking for what's, what's the right word for like the right wing simp I don't, I don't know what what term would be appropriate a red pillar it's a red pillar that's what <laughs> uh, okay. I was looking for. not an incel so uh yeah there's like a lot of cross currents here that you know, getting to the bottom of it is just absolutely fascinating because there's obviously something we don't know. There's some like, you know, abandoned, you know, uh, sled in his attic that, you know, says tweet on it or something like there's something going on here that it is beyond the surface. You know, uh, if you ask some people and I put this in my tweet storm, like he's doing this for Saudi Arabia. That's the crazy people. They're like, you know, Saudi Arabia gave him the money so he could destroy Twitter so that he could bring, you know, right wing, petrol fascism to the west so wait i voted (laughs) voted in this
1: i voted in this in this poll and i didn't i didn't get whatever the most popular answer was but like give us the options that you came down to about what on.
0: so these are not really mutually exclusive but let's just go through them fast so option one is sort of occam's razor which is he's just bad at managing stuff that is the easiest explanation for why he screwed this up so bad okay option two is what i call the producers and that is this idea that he's intentionally running it into the ground, just like in the play in the movie of The Producers. But in this case, the reason he's doing it is because he wants to effectively force the debt holders to capitulate and to realize their debt's worthless. And then he buys it back for pennies on the dollar and thereby recapitalizes the company and gets out of the terrible situation. Option three is what I affectionately called Leroy Jenkins. Leroy Jenkins, of those of you who you don't know, is a meme where, you know, people just throw all caution in the wind and jump into a fray against best, better wishes. And so this is the idea that maybe he is so like bitter about having to buy Twitter. You know, he lost in court. He's forced to buy it. He knows it's a bad idea that he's like, you know, F it. I'm just going to do whatever the hell I want to have some fun. The next one is what I call the conspiracy theory. So that's the one that either China or Saudi Arabia is forcing him to do this for some reason. I mean, this is like crazy pants, tinfoil, but like, Oh, I this, like this one. It's a pretty good... Like, you know, he took money from Binance. He took money from the Saudi prince. He's doing this for no good reason, and he keeps talking about the elites and the leftists and that sort of thing that makes no sense. So maybe there is a political aspect to this somehow. I mean, I, I don't have any evidence of that, but, you know, we don't have any evidence from doing anything in a rational way, so who knows? Um And then the last one, which I think is, like, the... Apologist one is called what I call breaking eggs, which is that his approach to product management is to just go as fast as possible and just to absolutely not care about collateral damage. And he believes that by writing code and launching things, he'll get to where he wants to go. And it looks much worse in this environment than it might at Tesla, for example, because this is an existing social network where breaking eggs means you know literal people and companies get damaged. And so somewhere in between those kind of five explanations for what's going on is uh, is the truth, I think. But what's your what's
1: your vote? What's your first of all, what one and then but what, is, what did you vote for?
0: Well, the poll is still going on. Oh, my God.
1: Sorry, um, this is going up on Tuesday. It's fine.
0: I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't want to, like, muddy the
1: waters in your Twitter poll.
0: But. Okay. Well, basically, the, the consensus is sort of the last one, breaking eggs, which is – and combined with sort of incompetence. Like, he's just a – he's a bad people manager. He's a bad manager in general. He's a brilliant person who's a bad manager. And his idea is just to, he has a vision for this thing, which is much less advertising, much more payments, much more verification, and he's going to get there the hard way. And the hard way is going to hurt a lot of people, and a lot of things. And it may also hurt him because he may lose all of his advertising dollars and not be able to complete his mission with the capital he has.
1: Yeah. Did you, I. what I'm like interested in, because you have experience of this, of like being sort of between the two worlds, is... Being between the tech world and the advertising industry. And these are like, th- that's not advertising, it's the advertising industry. And they've always been sort of, to me, like very strange codependent relationship to some degree because both sides like don't get each other. And that's why Silicon Valley, like I always felt like the tech industry, like, didn't take ad tech seriously. Is this true? This is always my. <laughs> I think. I think that Silicon the Valley e- people only care about app installs and stuff. Like that was the only thing that got them. Like they're like, yeah, dealing with like a lunch and learn. Like no,
0: Silicon Valley people. Uh, it, by that I mean kind of the engineering mindset. I use it as shorthand. It's shorthand. It, but it's accurate shorthand. They believe in sort of science and measurement and direct paths from A to B. And so when they think about how do I change an algorithm to increase the click-through rate of an ad, that makes a lot of sense to them. And they're pretty natural at that. And they And if you think about the success of Google and Facebook, incredible. Like incredible domination over the advertising business. If you think about a brand, about what does Coca-Cola mean to you, right? The red color, the script, the bottle... That's in your head, man. Yeah, <laughs> that's you know, advertising works between your ears, uh, and that's hard. They do not get that at all. And then the way that plays out, uh, this is the example I always like to give when I'm in the context of product management, because I've been in ad tech and product management. I'll, I'll ask an engineer like, if I had a, a million dollars to spend to launch a new shoe for Nike. And you could launch it for, you know, nine hundred thousand instead of a million. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? And every engineer, of course, will say, that's a good thing. I saved you a hundred thousand dollars. That's fantastic. And the answer is no. I was paid by Nike to spend a million dollars. You underdelivered by a hundred thousand. Uh, and that that in a nutshell is is the problem. Okay. The advertisers are not coming back to Twitter, right? No.
1: No. Because I think this is, to me, this is the thing like where I sort of go, maybe conspiracy like is the answer. Because I, he's obviously a brilliant person, right? Obviously, and he's mishandled this the the like advertising to such a degree that it it has to almost be like willful, willful. Like I I went through <laughs> that entire whatever. I, I joked that it was like the biggest lunch and learn ever that he did with advertisers on Twitter Spaces. It was, Hundred and eleven thousand people at the end and like silent advertisers because of like who is going to like press this guy and get attacked by like every troll like known to humanity? Like no CMO is gonna do that. No, right. Not happening. But like the stuff he was talking about, he was like, Yeah, I just I just go there and like shit post all the time. You should you should just try it. Just get in and like do it. Like, yeah. Like, <laughs> dude, have you ever talked to like a CMO? Like no, Jim Stengel's not gonna get on there and like start like shit posting like with meme lords and stuff. They're all like terrified of like getting fired because they're always fired.
0: Well, <laughs> yeah, CMOs are always fired. Like that's that's a nature law of nature. That has nothing to do with Elon or not. I think No, just, but it just
1: it it spoke to this like misunderstanding of like if he didn't know that that that. People were going to that that advertisers the advertising industry, it's not advertisers, it's the advertising industry was going to flee. That that means that he didn't know what they truly value. Two, like he didn't understand <clears throat> at all the nature of of the business and how risk averse these companies are.
0: Yeah. I, I think from what I've heard or seen, Elon doesn't understand advertising at all, even in a Silicon Valley frame. Like, I don't believe he understands how Google and Facebook make money either, which is quite a, quite a, uh, quite a fact if that's true. Cause he's, it's he all very reassuring to me. Yeah. I mean, I would think I would think this would have played out with like, hey, we're going to create the next AdWords, but for Twitter. And that would have been a naive thing to say, but, you know, reasonable. But in fact, uh, he doesn't seem to understand the direct response market or the brand market. He doesn't seem to understand that something like 80 percent of Twitter revenue is brands, not direct response. And then to get to reinforce what your points were, was that he doesn't understand how risk averse brands are how much the environment matters to them, um, how Twitter was always a marginal buy uh, because it's smaller and more risky to begin with. And his top priority of effectively making it riskier by allowing more, quote I'm putting in air quotes, free speech, which you know, bullshit phrase, but also, you know, <laughs> allowing people to be verified for $8 uh, plus just mix it up and keep it exciting. Those are Those are all good reasons to not advertise on Twitter. And then you throw this into the environment of we're just entering a recession where people will be cutting back their ad budgets. And you could just imagine the conversation like, hey, we need to save 10 percent. What should we do? Hmm. I don't know. Why don't we just turn off Twitter until we figure that thing out? I mean, I have I have non-people who don't work
1: in the advertising industry as friends. And I just got, like, text message in one of my groups, like, with, like, the, the brand impersonations and stuff out there. Yeah. And, like, every every brand is getting them. And, like, if he doesn't get that, like... Like, he probably doesn't even know about the screenshot industrial complex and how, like, much of the ad industry has been ruled by it and stuff. Because, <laughs> like, that's the part that I find interesting in that, like... <clears throat> Maybe he didn't surround himself with, with the people who, who tell him, like, no, Elon, this isn't how this works. It well, seems well, like he fires the people who, who tell him that.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, okay, let's, let's just go through the last, let's go through uh, six months prior to the acquisition. We have Twitter, uh, Twitter after several, several earnings releases in a row, talks about how the revenue is delayed because they're building a new ad server. Th- that's kind of a red flag to anyone in ad tech, like building a new ad server. That sounds hard and complicated. Uh, then they sell MoPub, which was a division of Twitter that was really important in the mobile, uh, direct response world. They sold it for a billion dollars. That's a nice amount of change. But if you expect Twitter to be a leader in direct response advertising, selling this really valuable, irreplaceable asset doesn't seem like the best move. Then the new CEO comes and fires most of the ad team, including the leader, Bruce Falk. This all happened before Elon entered the building. Now let's go over the last week of activities. Two weeks. Elon shows up. Day one posts fake news about Paul Pelosi's attempted at assassination. Good move. Day three, I think he threatens to sue
1: advertisers. He didn't threaten to <laughs> sue them. He threatened to like incite a mob. Against
0: them. No, he. So did, the, yeah, you're right. Theory. I think day three, he threatened a mob against people who refused oh. to advertise. And then like day five, he agreed with someone who threatened to sue them and with torturous interference. Uh, okay, yeah. Uh, right. True. And then by day eight, we have a deluge of fake verified people making fun of the very brands that would be advertisers in really painful ways, like accusing Chiquita of fomenting co coup, coups in latin america and and not I'm wrong not wrong i didn't say it was wrong uh and <laughs> They're funny. Uh, Eli Lilly, uh, giving insulin away for free, uh, which apparently hit their stock price today yeah. by, by a large amount of money. And, uh, and, and this is also, uh, just as a footnote, all the auto manufacturers just pulled all their ads right away because they don't want to support Tesla. So one category, uh, one vertical category that represents, you know, a pretty big piece of brand advertising is just off the table. So I must have missed a couple of things, but that was, that's a quick little history lesson.
1: Yeah. It's pretty insane. I mean, but it is entertaining. I mean, when he said, "Like, are you not entertained?" Like, I think we are all entertained. I'm entertained. Maybe, maybe too much. Let's pivot to talk about where ad tech is now, because you've 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 been in the industry for a while, but then you you're sort of out of it. But you'll get you'll get you'll get pulled back in.
0: Uh, yeah, so I sold my company. What's your adtech You can't, you
1: can't, you can't get out of ad
0: tech. No, some people have. I've seen some people get out of ad tech. You uh, usually have to flee the country as keep, well. They usually end up in blue, Mexico. Keep
1: those blue blazers in your closet ready. because yeah. you're going to need them again.
0: Yeah. Uh, you know, I, every event comes up like can and De Mexico, and people are like are you going and I I'm, I'm thick to myself, maybe I should go. But then I realize <laughs> I have no reason. Not only would I have to pay for it myself, but also I would literally have nothing to do. It's really sad. Fun. So no, you you sold you sold beeswax. Sold like, beeswax.
1: Then, yeah, explain to people why you what you're doing with with beeswax and the x
0: yeah sure so we started beeswax in 2014 it was a uh dsp more or less we called it a bidder as a service but it really was a All dsp right, dsp
1: demand side platform demand side platform
0: the, yeah no acronym dogies.
1: real yeah, talk you, you have no idea no acrony- acrony- <laughs> you have no idea where this shit is gonna go next okay okay <laughs> yeah i'm so- gonna be jumping in a lot
0: <laughs> All right. So you want to buy ads in a programmatic way, meaning using servers, not people. You're not buying martinis. You're, you're like using computers. You have to use a product called a DSP or demand side platform. The two leading ones are Google and, uh, and a publicly traded company called the trade desk. I'm probably sure everyone's heard of the trade desk. We were a small company that focused on the most technical users. So we had APIs and a lot of customization and we enabled, uh, folks who wanted to buy ads in very sort of advanced ways, kind of like the way it Edge Fund buys stocks. They don't just log into Charles Schwab and buy some stocks. Okay. They have direct connections to the exchanges. This gave
1: them like an advantage because it's a bidding environment. Basically. It's
0: like, That's okay. right. So we, we grew it very rapidly and had a very nice exit where we sold it to Comcast Freewheel Division in 2000, uh, 2021, early 21. Uh, the company's doing really well inside of Comcast. I exited a year later in early 22. And now I've started a couple of things, most notably a company called Markitecture or Markitecture.tv which is uh in depth interviews with executives and CEOs of ad tech and Martech companies, or no nonsense, get to the facts, help you understand if they're vendors you want to work with or what they do and how it works. And and this
1: I, I love the the texture idea concept because like I've I've been confused by ad tech for over a decade.
0: Yes. Yes, that's the that's what it's for. I just keep asking. They, You know, I get these executives on, and they give me their usual bullshit spiel about, like, how they bring buyers and sellers together.
1: Now you know how I feel.
0: And I'm like, this is my show. You tell me what you really do. No. <laughs> you know, I do not understand what you just said. Break it down.
1: But, like, this has been, like, a – so, the, and I think the need for it has always been, like – in some ways the Achilles heel of, of the ad tech industry, right? Like we've been subjected to Terry Kawaja's like Luma scape slide for I, when did he start it? It's probably been like a decade. Yeah, probably a decade. And anyone who hasn't seen it, it's this eye chart of, I don't know, there's, he's got like multiple, like, but there's, there's hundreds of logos on there. And the, the knock on ad tech was always, it was too complex. It was too confusing. There was too many middlemen. And then like Google, like basically just like scooped up each and a bunch of logos and just built their own thing. And then people were like, there's not enough competition. There's no innovation. It's like, well, which do you want?
0: Right. Uh, I think innovation requires some level of fragmentation. If you think about all the different ways that advertisers and their agencies can buy digital media across medium, like, you know, TV banner ads, uh, mobile ads, et cetera, across creative types video text imagery across different optimization types using different kinds of data different geographies it's a very complicated business much more complicated and and hopefully more efficient than uh traditional media like tv and uh, broadcast and magazines so so i'm not a scared of the complexity i think it's a good talking point for those who want to you know sell their lack of complexity but the uh, the uh the complexity it's not a problem in and of itself
1: Yeah. But like, so with like market texture, the the idea is like anyone who is on the buyer, the sell side, you know, is an advertiser or a publisher um, has like an extensive tech stack, like, and just being able to like run ads, count the ads, put the ads in front of theoretically the right person at the right time and stuff like this requires an inordinate number of partners. I mean, I know this having done many, many, Many events in this industry.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, it does. Uh, to do it right, I mean, there the market actually segments pretty clearly into large and small. So, if you're a small publisher, you may get get by entirely with the Google stack on the sell side. You just put some tags up and make money. If you're a small advertiser, you might get away with Google plus Facebook. But as soon as you become large and you become mm-hmm. Estee Lauder or, or General Motors or even like large like you know, Peloton, I know they're not doing that well, but they do a lot of advertising. You suddenly have a lot of complex requirements around data collection, privacy, uh, optimization, creative, geographies, multiple agencies, uh, the mix of brand and direct response. All these things create complexity. And and whatever you can think of, there's probably a vendor for you, right? Right. And so the idea behind architecture is that
1: when you have to figure out the vendors that you're going to use, first of all, I, this is my own like outside opinion. Like everyone sounds the same. Like they, they just do. sound the same. They do. Like they're, they're just, the words are just mixed up. It reminds me of like a Mexican restaurant where you're yeah. like, hmm, the chimichanga is actually just the enchilada and the enchilada is really just the burrito. And like, yeah. and so you really have to dig in to like understand the differentiation. And, and tell me if I'm wrong on this one. A lot of the people who are digging in to understand the differentiation are, are what is euphemistically called non technical.
0: Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. The idea behind Market is to replace your first meeting. Uh, so if you, you're interested in, I say, a creative solution, so you want a software product that lets your designers create a lot of banner ads really quickly, and that's very valuable, right? Mm-hmm. You go to the websites, you find six or seven vendors, and they all sound exactly the same, and you really just cannot tell. So you have to have a meeting with all of them, and then you, your meeting has five people in it times You know, six vendors and suddenly you spent $10,000 before you even really figured out what you're even trying to do. Having myself, who's in, you know, admittedly an expert, you know, grill the CEO for half an hour on video about what they actually do. You do not need that first meeting. You could immediately eliminate that vendor and say, no, 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 they're, they're not right for us or they sound great. Like let's get them in right away. Um, that's the idea. I'm not going to, you're not going to be able to watch my video and immediately choose a vendor or, or solve your business problem, but we're going to save you a lot of time. So give me the case
1: for why ad tech is interesting right now.
0: I haven't been paying attention. <laughs> I've been living in Miami for a couple of years. I don't know what the hell's going on. Well, I'll tell you what's interesting in ad tech. How about that? So there's, there's really three things that are interesting. In it. There's more than three, but three uh, Are you going to say no and then we'll just end the podcast? I think for ordinary people, <laughs> ad tech should be... A little interesting and they should pay a little more attention than they do for the average consumer who is not in our business it's pretty interesting that apple just three years ago uh, went up on stage they showed a picture of a bicycle and they said or tim cook said doesn't it bother you when the bicycle is falling around the web and God. it's so creepy there's this bicycle and wouldn't you rather it didn't happen well we're introducing privacy and that sounded great. We just we came up with a new. So this is like a Saturday Night Live like commercial. It very well privacy. <laughs> I'm I'm not very far off from what actually happened. And everyone claps. It goes. That sounds great. Apple's our friend. And then, uh, you know, round numbers, I would say, a uh, trillion dollars of value disappeared from the public yeah. markets. Uh, people went out of business. Peloton practically went out of business. People can't sell uh, sheets and pillows online anymore. You know, so Facebook expl- fired so, 10,000 people.
1: Yeah. So explain, <laughs> because this is what I was sort of getting at, why it, it is kind of an interesting time. That was what I was thinking yeah. who
0: gets it. Otherwise, we have just finished this thing.
1: Is what specifically did Apple do? with both IDFA and then this thing called ATT.
0: Yeah. So let's put it in perspective. So the iPhone was introduced, I guess now 11 years ago, 10, 11 years ago, a new medium, whenever there's a new medium, advertisers find that. And some mediums are less attractive to advertisers and some are more attractive to advertisers. So in the history of the mobile phones before the iPhone, it was a very unattractive business. There were very few ads on Blackberries. And flip phones. Very few. There were some, but they're very. Few. So the iPhone was introduced. It became incredibly popular, as we all know. And it had a feature in it, which allowed app developers and marketers and different people to anonymously, anonymously identify the users who were looking at the apps. It was called an IDFA. It was called something else at the time they changed the name, but that's too much detail. So, so this anonymous <laughs> yeah. identifier. You're at the right altitude. All yeah. Right, the you. anonymous identifier <laughs> was amazing like it was incredible for everyone in the ecosystem because it allowed you to optimize what ads were shown to that user based on their behavior both but on it was a hack the, it
1: was like the third party cookie was a hack is this it was hack? not a hack no no it was no, not a hack no. it was
0: made the, for this it was well yes it was the idfa stands for identifier for advertising okay um uh, it was not it's a like hack. beto it,
1: o'rourke remember when he like declared for president he's like i'm made
0: for this and like uh, like Beto, it had a limited shelf life. Uh, <laughs> so the IDFA was magical, and it actually solved the hack that was the case in the browser in the in the web browser. We had the hack, which was cookies, which were not meant for advertising, but were glommed on by everyone, and they they disappear and they don't follow you around, and they're not very reliable. The IDFA was magical and worked great, and as a result, a very robust advertising and marketing ecosystem uh, developed in mobile, uh, highlighted by Facebook and Instagram. I like to. To say that while Google Search is the world's greatest advertising product ever created, Instagram is the world's greatest brand advertising ever created. You know, basically, you could show handbags and shoes, and it's really direct yeah. response ish, but still. Anyway, the point being, the you could say if Apple had never put the IDFA there in the first place, it would have played out very differently, and the whole ecosystem around advertising in apps and app economics would have been different. But it was there for many years. And, and Apple decided for some good reasons to make it so that that identifier was only opt in. So it didn't, ex- it was not shared with all these parties by default. The user had to be shown a prompt called the ATT, which is, I forget what it stands for, app tracking transparency. That's what it stands for, yeah. ATT. And, and so when you'd open an app and probably most of the listeners here are aware of this, you would sometimes see this interesting dialogue that said, would you like to allow this app to track you around? You're around the web or whatever the language yes. is. Really scary yes. language. Yes. Scary. <laughs> yes, right, right. Please. Really scary language. Uh, and, and if, and, and, you know, obviously a minority of people will say yes when, when prompted yeah. like that. And Apple went even further by saying, not only do you have to use the scary prompt, you are not allowed to give people any incentive to say yes uh you're and if they say no you can't track them by any other method yeah. you, they have to be dead to you and, and not uh, to
1: not to be a conspiracy theor here theorist here yeah but it, it does it, it, it i think i should point out that apple also did not have an advertising business really and they sold phones so they didn't give a shit about like kneecapping anyone oh absolutely I don't they think tried I... advertising once with iad and it was a disaster
0: Okay. Well, there's some nuance to that, but yeah, I don't think you need to be a conspiracy theorist to say that there were <laughs> clearly, they, they saw that their two rivals, their number one rivals, Google, and Google obviously has. Enormous advertising exposure. And, and their number one kind of pain in the ass, I wouldn't call them a rival, is meta Facebook. I mean, I think there's no yeah. love lo- lost between those companies. So hitting yeah. them in the kneecaps was kind of fun for Tim. Well,
1: I mean, t- Tim, Tim Cook, was I mean, it, I think going back to Steve Jobs, it was just like your business model sucks. I
0: mean, they were yes. very,
1: very upfront with having zero respect for for how uh, Facebook decided to. Absolutely.
0: Uh, and as for Apple iAds, you know, Apple's been, Apple, the original launch of iAd under Steve Jobs uh, was very video and TV oriented and didn't do very well, as you said. But it didn't go away. And they've been slowly creeping back. And they've built actually a very substantial business of search ads on the App Store, oh, yeah. similar to Google Ads, where basically... That's the so-
1: advertising. That's what I think. When Silicon Valley thinks about advertising... They think about like that because it's like a toll booth and they're like, I love this. This is a revenue spigot. I can turn on the revenue spigot.
0: Yeah. I mean, go into the app store and search for Uber and I bet you'll see a Lyft ad and search for Lyft, (laughs) you'll see an Uber ad. It's great. Uh, Do you remember uh, when like
1: when there was the controversy of like whether Google would like sell like keywords based on like trademarks and stuff? Yeah. And then like they ran the numbers and they're like, sue us.
0: Yeah, okay. yeah, they got sued. They got sued by a lot of people. I think they won those lawsuits. I mean, clearly they're still doing it. You know, branded key, branded keywords was what the controversy yeah. was over. Yeah, Brooks Brothers was pissed about it. <laughs> it Maybe it, that's it really what is. happened to
1: Brooks Brothers. Maybe it wasn't it, the boxy suits going out of fashion.
0: Are they out of business, Brooks Brothers? I don't know. They should be. All right. Little, well, who's okay. wearing a suit? I guess they're not going to be sponsoring the rebooting anytime soon. Okay. I mean, gonna, people I'm do not, need. i'm not I'm not toadying up to Brooks Brothers together. I'm just saying your audience probably has like hundred percent blue blazer penetration. <laughs> okay
1: all right, let's get back to apple okay and and add tech.
0: Yeah, yeah. So the other shoe that dropped, and this goes into the conspiracy theory yeah. bucket, is that very clearly Apple has been increasing their investment in advertising, corresponding to the rollout of ATT. So Apple <laughs> collects a lot of information. Sure. Yes, I know. <laughs> Apple collects a lot of information about what you do on your phone, and it has a different preference that's not doesn't have the scary language. It, it, Apple has this language that's like, "Would you like to ha- help Apple to you know make your phone better with ads?" and and they they claim that. It's all kosher because instead of passing your data around to these anonymous, evil ad tech companies, they keep it and they keep it and they keep it on your phone. So that's really the distinction. They say if they if they profile you and show you those creepy ads, but the data is on your phone, then that's cool. Nothing to be worried about. Not a privacy issue. But if the creepy ads are coming from outside your phone, you know, you're basically one step away from 1984.
1: Okay, and this has had a tremendous impact on a particular sector, uh, really, of the advertising industry. Because it's like you have this strange situation where the the ad holding companies are reporting a, yeah. great results, they're raising like you know their their forecasts and stuff, and then you have Snap, which is like their stock is down like eighty five percent. Right, Meta just like laid off eleven thousand people. Like it, it's really. It seems like it's really impacted a particular form of like of targeted advertising.
0: Yeah, I mean, app advertising is really what's been hit the worst. You know, the, the browser has had problems with cookies and identity for quite some time, but it's been kind of a slow burn. The Apple ATT impact has come on very strong over the past 12 months, hitting companies that advertise in their apps, on a direct response basis. That combination is what got killed. What's fascinating about advertising? I'd love to see a study on this, but I just know it anecdotally is that there's, o- there's almost two totally separate ecosystems that don't talk. It's like, like yeah. red state and blue state America. And that is like what I call ad tech. What you call ad tech is yeah. one ecosystem. And then mobile is totally different. They're different right, people, yeah. different companies. They don't talk to each other. Agencies. And they're massive. The, and they're in they're Silicon massive. Valley. They're Silicon Valley. The, the
1: app download people, like, yes. just, it seems like they're in a different, like, world. Yeah, somewhere. they are.
0: They're different advertisers, different technology companies, different measurement companies. And that's one of the things that, that is also interesting, which is if you look at a mainstream ad tech company, I, I'll just call a name, like the Trade Desk. You're one of the biggest they really don't do much app installs. Like, it's just not part of what people use them for. If you go to, like, a big holding company like Publisys, probably not a lot of app installs going on there. Probably if you're a Publisys Fortune 500 customer and you need your app to get installed, you probably are calling up AppLovin or someone like that to do it for you. Maybe your agency's evolved tangentially, but they don't have the skills to make it happen. All right. So we're entering in this new period where, targeting
1: is going to be harder, right? Like, I mean, what's going on in the browser with, you know, Google is going to eventually deprecate this third-party cookie. It's going away at some point, right? The Apple stuff's happening over there. What seems very clear is that the era of like easy, cheap targeting is sort of coming to an end. So what, I, I, I talk about how like, it seems like we're in this period where a lot of like eras are ending, but we're just
0: unsure about what follows. Yeah, just like democracy, right? yeah uh, that's what I meant <laughs> sorry to get all political on the ad tech talk uh the so the it's a, it's definitely true that consumers are going to be less identifiable on their digital devices because of legislative and privacy changes like that that's a fact right so then you you have to ladder that up to like what is the impact on you know advertising and on business and and what is interesting is that while it may be impossible, let's say, for an advertiser to target the same consumers on a one-to-one basis across channels. That may just not be possible anymore. It is possible for publishers to do it. So a large-scale publisher who has a login wall or a red wall knows who those consumers are at a one-to-one basis. And so does most CTV, connected TV apps have logins. They know who the users are. The cable companies and the phone companies know who the consumers are. Right. So we haven't had a wholesale removal of identity. It's not an anonymous web anymore. It's just the power is shifting. Uh, and the technology is shifting. So on the power, probably this should be good for scaled publishers in some way in that an advertiser in over the last 10 years, advertisers have sort of seen publisher relations as an optional part of the business where they could just log into their favorite DSP, the same acronym yeah, yeah. of choice, and get access to those consumers wherever they might be looking at content, yeah, uh, which was bad to me for as, publishers. As
1: see a cookie, hit a cookie.
0: Yeah. Or um, buy a publisher, ad salesperson. Uh, I've also heard of it as, you know, digging for oil on other people's land.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my mom always told me like, why buy the cow when you can get the milk for free?
0: Sure. (laughs) The difference is that the, in this case, just to use that metaphor, like the advertiser is getting the milk. The farmer doesn't even know where the cow is. Um, Okay. Right. Um. Uh, so we're moving to a world where the farmer knows where the cow is, and the advertiser doesn't know anything. There's a fence. The advertiser isn't even allowed in to look. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's maybe good news for scaled publishers that they can recapture some of that. Okay. Uh, and bad
1: news for the long tail because the long tail it's always bad news for them because they don't have they don't have sales forces. They don't have a a, a lot of first party with notice first party data like and. They're, they're always like dependent on, on these kind of automated solutions.
0: For yeah. It's bad news in two ways. First of all, it's bad news in that the results have gotten worse. And that's why we've seen the implosion of D2C companies. So the D2C companies can no longer attract customers at affordable ROI. So some of them have gone out of business or, or had to sell because they literally just can't find the customers. And secondly, I and mean, that's bad why you
1: new- look at Shopify's like stock price. Like I made a mistake during the pandemic of buying Shopify stock and like. Yes. It, the flaw of, of Shopify was the fact that they outsourced acquisition to cheap ads on Instagram. Right. And then like those cheap ads on Instagram became a lot more expensive and a lot less effective. And the DTC companies could only exist in a, in a world of cheap ads,
0: it seemed. Yes. Like. Yeah. Well, it was a magical time. I use the word magical a lot, but it was like the Instagram <laughs> ads just worked so well that it, if you imagine the ads worked so well, they created thousands of businesses. Uh, based solely on attracting customers from Instagram. You tell these stories to your kids at night. It was a magical time, kids. (laughs) Uh, You'd be surprised in the sort of conversation. Right. And the second way this is bad for long tail is that they become more dependent on Google and Facebook. Like they're already very dependent on, on them. Uh, but when they, they can't in a world with less data and less ability to differentiate, they become even more dependent on whoever can. And you know, Google and Facebook are kind of the one-eyed men in this situation, where like everyone's blind, mm-hmm. but they have the scale and the ML models and everything to make sense out of, of the anonymous sort of world.
1: Yeah. So, final thing, and then we're going to go is and and this may be fraught because you you, you were an employee there. Give me the, the the case for, and then the case against forcing Google to relinquish its ad tech assets.
0: Yeah, sure. The case for, and this, I'll actually, I don't think this is what you're asking, but I'll answer it this way. Why should Google want to? <laughs> I'm used to this though. also too, Ari. <laughs> why should Google want to spin out? Google should want to spin out the ad tech assets. Their network business, they divide their business into search, uh, YouTube, network, and everything else. Network is uh, declining faster than the other groups. Uh, so revenue was down over the last 12 months. It is lower margin uh, than the other groups. And it's the source of virtually all their antitrust and privacy problems. They should happily spin it out and focus on the other parts of their business, which are amazing and are growing well. I mean, YouTube had a tough quarter, but could use a lot more attention. That's why Google should want to. Why the government should want them to and everyone else? Well, it is very big and it's very, and by combining it with their other businesses like Android and YouTube and search, there are inefficiencies in the market and more money is being taken out of advertisers' hands in a way that theoretically shouldn't happen if it was an independent company. The Against, the the con is that it actually is more efficient to have it as part of YouTube and the rest of the search, and advertisers would have worse ROI if it was an independent company.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is always like the push and pull. Like, people want the innovation, but they want the efficiency at the end of the day. And, like, they want, like, to have competition in the ecosystem, but they want it to be super easy. And it's like, well, which do you want? Like, yeah, you don't get everything. Right. So Also, the final thing on this is... I find the Trade Desk a very interesting company. I'm not trying to sell ads to the Trade Desk, but call you me if
0: people. I'm sure they would Is
1: what and Only because like, they've been able to compete. Like, I would always like, have meetings over the years with, with different people that were doing different things in, in the digital ad ecosystem. And My first question was always like, wait, why won't Google crush? And <laughs> it was just a stock question. But Trade Desk has like, been able to like, compete on like, a, a big scale. What did they get right?
0: It w- uh, kept it simple and executed right. They just did what their customers wanted. Produced plain vanilla innovation after plain vanilla innovation. And by that, Ring I mean
1: endorsement.
0: <laughs> no, I mean that's what people want. They want the products that work and get better every quarter, and that's what they gave them. Uh And and I use the word innovation. Like they weren't building boring bad stuff. They were building interesting stuff. It just wasn't mind-blowing it's not like they it's not a nuclear reactor and uh, you know i i was in a similar business at beeswax when i was running it and we also had a lot of success by just being very focused on product making it better every quarter treating our customers well and uh and the result is you know a fast-growing highly profitable business with very loyal customers so good yeah
1: all right. All right. We're going to leave it there because my battery is running out. Thank you so much for this little walk uh, through the wilds of, of the ad tech world. And everyone, when you're going to get smart about ad tech, check out marketexture.tv and get smart. Thanks for having me, Brian. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for listening this week. We will be back next week with a new episode. The Rebooting Show is produced by Pod Help Us. Podcasts are a great way to expand your client base. PodHelp Us lets you focus on having engaging conversations, giving your brand the full stack of services needed for a professional look and sound. Start your podcast today at podhelp.us.